Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. G'day, welcome back to The Blank Canvas. This week's guest is a trailblazer in the world of motorcycles. I'll be honest, I know next to nothing about motorcycles unless you count zipping around on a scooter on holiday in Bali. However, I've always looked on at awe at superbike races or MotoGP riders flying around corners at 200Ks plus with their knees scraping the ground, sparks coming off, and wondered how is that even possible, let alone the courage to do it. Keith Code is a writer, inventor and coach who has dedicated himself to understanding and teaching the art of riding motorcycles. Achieving success in California in the 70s riding for the legendary Yoshimura team, Keith found he had an aptitude for analysing and communicating the techniques required to carry speed through a corner. Under Keith's instruction, many a racer dramatically reduced their lap times, which demonstrated that speed wasn't just a matter of innate talent, but there was teachable skills there. The press dubbed him the guru of road racing. Encouraged by this success, Keith began his pioneering one-on-one courses in 1976. Any kind of advanced riding instruction didn't exist at this time. Distilling his theories onto paper and creating numerous practical drills, Keith wrote his first book, Twist of the Wrist. To this day, it's the world's number one instruction manual for motorcycle riding. In 1980, Keith established a school to offer his unique training to anyone with a motorcycle license. Four decades later, California Superbike School has become synonymous with sport bike training with schools in the US, the UK and Australia. As of 2021, riders who have been trained either at his schools or by Keith personally have won 65 world and national racing championships. His California Superbike schools have operated at over 90 tracks worldwide in 15 countries and have trained more than 150,000 riders. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the blank canvas, Keith Code. G'day, Keith Code. Good morning, Lee. How are you today? I, you know, I don't think I could be much better. I'm in uh, Big Sur, California. Beautiful. And uh, Judy and I are staying down the road in, in Big Sur at a great cabin and you know, outside the cabin, it's 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 very confusing. There are giant redwoods out there that that they they during the daytime they talk, uh, at nighttime they just hum. So I was able to get a really good night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, it's amazing you can hear anything after that many years of you know racing and being around motorcycles. Yeah, good point. <laughs> hear, hear what? <laughs> Oh, oh, oh yeah, I have some. I have some help, you know. But uh, I'm wearing these earphones, and they they seem to be working pretty well at the moment. Fantastic! Hey, it's funny. I was thinking of the last time I saw you, and it was when I I think it's about five years ago, and I was staying at your house with your lovely wife Judy, and I turned you guys yeah. on, onto the uh, Aussie TV show Rake. <laughs> oh yeah, right. I think we watched the whole series. 
Yeah, I think you watched all five five seasons. I think it uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it appealed to your bent sense of humor. Oh yeah, it's it's the uh, fifteen or twenty trips I've done to Australia. I, you know, like I kind of like it, and and I don't want to tell any Americans that maybe I would really prefer to live in Australia someplace, but. Don't tell anybody. We won't tell them. Well, you know what? Right now, most of Australia's in lockdown, so I think I'd rather be in Big Sur. Oh, you would love it. <laughs> Big Sur has its own uh, history, and it's one of those situations that uh, I find every once in a while in really special places. You walk around or drive around, and it's like the history sort of wells up out of the different areas, right? And you go but what's that? What's that? You know, and it's, I don't know, it'd be something like that had to do with the Indians 150 or 200 years ago. Right. And it's one of those magical places that has its, its own uh, life actually, but it doesn't lose any life. That's, I think that's the amazing part to me. And I really enjoy being here. Judy and I love to come here. We've been doing it for, I don't know, last 40 years or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some places have a kind of spiritual wavelength that just emanates, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very much so, yeah. I mean, New York City is the same. It's very much like that for me as well when I walk around New York City. And no matter how many times I go there, the first time I went, I was like, <gasps> what, what is this? You know, okay, there's a park up there, but everything else is cities and streets and sidewalks and people doing stuff and cars driving and all this other kind of stuff. But I was walking through there and I was almost like I was walking through the kind of a museum of recorded histories of people and things. And I was, I was about 16 and I was like, wow, this place is amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Loved it ever since. Yeah, it's a, an electrifying city, that's for sure. You know, it's interesting talking, yeah. talking about New York because I think, you know, before you wrote the Bible of what became, you know, the Bible of teaching how to ride a motorcycle, which was your book, um, Twist of the Wrist, you spent a lot of time in New York and I remember you telling me you were, I don't know, hanging out with musos and, you know, you had a whole nother life before you came the motorcycle guy. Tell us about your time in New York and, and what you were doing there. Oh, okay. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a, quite a subject, actually. Uh, okay, let me just say it in this fashion. We're talking about the 1960s, all right? So I have uh, invested in the 1960s back then. And, of course, love, sex, and drugs were part of it, weren't they? Yeah, okay. Well, the drugs were very interesting to me. <laughs> so I uh, uh, bashed around uh, all up and down the east coast of uh, the United States, lived in Woodstock for a, a year and did that. But uh, I was uh, pretty well committed to wanting to be high all the time. And uh, that's a, quite a past history. I finished that with the 60s. I went, okay, I'm clicking out of the 60s. <laughs> and I'm done with that. But... Um, it was an adventure for sure. It was uh, quite a bit of wasted time in many cases because I look at the things that I really wanted to do back then and I was always being diverted away slightly from my basic goals, I guess, you know. And my basic goals were what I started doing when I was 12, which is riding motorcycles. And that's what I really wanted to do. And those are the things that interested me, you know. And every once in a while, some little filmy idea would come through my universe, you know, of like what I was doing or how I was doing it or something like that. And I went, yeah, it's a good idea, but I don't think it's a good idea to ride them. Yeah, when I'm on drugs. (laughs) And I did a couple of times. And uh, 
I even raced actually on on some drugs, and uh, there was just too much going on. <laughs> I had to give that up. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was devastating. I could see that it wasn't going to last very long if I did that anymore. Gotcha. So, how did you manage to get yourself out of that scene, and um, I guess be as successful as you've you've been first as a writer, and and then as a, as a teacher, author, um, inventor. Yeah, well, I think for me, uh, my interest in the, in writing never never really flagged. It was always sitting back in my universe someplace. I got to the point where I realized it was not going to work out that way. I wasn't going to be able to hold these two things in place, right? And there was a lot of PR back in the day about, you know, if you take this stuff, you know, you're, you have these great expansions, you know, you you know all these new things and that type of stuff, right? It was the PR that came out of, uh, you know, the psychedelic era. You know, having done that, I realized that either I wasn't set up for it or it wasn't good for me. And so I kind of backed away from that. And there were a couple of big influences in my world that got me into actually investigating the area of, of how to ride and ride better. The very first one was some guys at the school that I went to called the Akron Art Institute. And I got the idea of that things could be broken down from these guys. And it was very interesting. I wasn't really an artist at all, but they turned me into somebody who could actually draw. And it was, it was interesting too, because, uh, you know, I went into the drawing class and the guy said, uh, okay, now you get, take yourself uh, some sheets of paper, an eight and a half by 11 paper, and, um, you know, make an eight inch square inside of it. So that, so there's a square inside of it that you could see with, with pencil and, you know, make a hundred of them and find the middle of each one. All right. Okay, find the middle of each one. So this drill that he had made, right? you had to look at the piece of paper or look at the square that you were doing and then make these calculations. And you kind of went through this process of bringing things in and, and eliminating things to find the middle of the paper. And then each, every time you put your pencil down in the middle of the paper and put a dot in there, you had to cross it you know, do line from top right to lower left, top left to lower right, and check it and see. And if you were more than, you know, a sixteenth of an inch off, that one was no good. So after a couple hundred of these things, I could find the middle of the page. <laughs> and I, I have to say that that exercise itself was a pretty strong guide to my background of trying to figure out how to ride motorcycles. Where riding motorcycles is one of those things where, you know, you look at the statistics on how well people uh, multitask. And scientifically, they don't. It's not something that they accomplish well. Right? Like, oh, yeah, you know, this guy multitask and multitask and so on and so forth. And I went, I don't know. I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, you're trying to figure out your speed how much lean angle you have, the line that you're on, the surface that you're on, the amount of traction that you have. And I went, who can do five things at once? Right? So started breaking those things down and breaking those things down into smaller and smaller bits. And and every once in a while I would find something and I would go, oh, right, I can use that. I can really use that. And, you know, the bottom line kind of was in, in a sense that uh, I wanted to improve my own writing, but then I started seeing these things that I went, uh, I think pretty much anybody could run into these same problems. And then I started writing myself notes. That, that was a while ago, I think uh, 1975. Okay, cool. 
thanks for that. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you, you started me talking. <laughs> I don't know. That was fun. <laughs> no, no, that's cool. So you were basically, you know, you were discovering things yourself and teaching yourself. And then I think in 76 or something, you won like 11 out of 12 of the California Superbike races that year. Is that right? Is 11 out of 12? Uh, back then, there was, uh, there was a really super strong club operating in California, not nationwide, but in California, uh, called the AFM, American Federation of Motorcyclists. And lots of guys came through there from the California area that, you know, succeeded really, really well in, in racing. But it was, uh, at that time, it was called amateur racing. But the, you know, it would show up at the track and it would be 300 or 400 entries for the events. So, you know, you always had loads and loads of really good competition. There were some great riders that came out of that era. And those were the things that started showing me that I probably had something to learn. But into this a little bit further, I needed a way to try to identify things that would go wrong. And the main thing on that was I picked up the Dianetics book and I looked at that and, the, and it had a listing of exactly the things that go wrong with you know, with your person and how they perceive things. And so I started applying that data and that's kind of what sort of brought me up to another level aside from the idea of, you know, just breaking things down. And then that was, a, it was nice because it was, gave me a format of basic data about sorting out the kind of problems that, uh, you know, people have in general, but I'm specifically addressing, you know, my motorcycle riding and it worked out perfectly. So the combination of these concepts and ideas of breaking things down into really tiny little parts. And then the whole idea of, you know, what can go wrong when you're trying to learn something, add it together where, I don't know, I guess it laid in a pretty strong mode of operation for me. Wow, that's cool. So after winning, I can't believe there was 300 entries. So literally I read that you won 11 out of 12 of the races that year and there was often 300 people that would turn up for a race. Is that right? Uh, no, no. I mean, those were all the classes. The, uh, the events themselves, yeah, they would start off with somewhere between 20 and 50 riders in each one of the events. So it was convincing enough to be able to beat those other guys. And I started trying to break down the specific parts of of writing at that time. And then I started writing myself some notes. And as the notes uh, expanded a little bit, you know, I wound up and I had seven pages of interesting things that, you know, if you could correct them, your writing went better. I went, oh, this is pretty cool. I'll start a school. And <laughs> so I, I put an ad in Cycle News and said, you know, Keith Code Writer Improvement Program, uh, 150 bucks. It's two days. And the first day I would I would take these seven pages of material I had and I would have the guy read them and then take demonstration pieces and demonstrate exactly what I was talking about so I could see whether he really, really understood it or not. And uh, Clear terms. Yeah, clear the terms up, yeah. <laughs> Judy's here, she's helping. <laughs> <laughs> I was clearing the terms up and some of which I made up because there wasn't any real data at the time, not a lot of real data about how to ride. And uh, it, was, it was quite successful. But I was, yeah, okay, uh, I get a student. This guy's a, a racer. He, I had some pros that came, and I had some club guys that came, and there were some street riders that came. And uh, the club guys were easier to follow because you could see they had a tendency to keep the statistics on what it is was that they did, and they were especially interested, of course, in their lap times. And uh, I looked at it after I was doing it for about six months, and I had about 25 guys, 
and they had an average improvement of seven seconds. And seven seconds on a racetrack is, you're just living in a different universe with seven seconds faster, right? So I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess this is working out pretty well. <laughs> That's amazing. I was hooked. Gotcha. So basically it was amateur at that time. So there wasn't really much money in it. Hence, you're also able to, you know, make a living out of the school. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In 1976, uh, I got a pro license. And I raced the AMA, American Motorcycle Association. That was the beginning of Superbike. There was no Superbike prior to that. And I knew the guys who invented it or, you know, thought it up and, and, and so on. And and, and came into, uh, into its own life in 76. And uh, I heard about it and I went, oh boy, that's great. I have a Kawasaki Z1. I'll modify it and I'll become a racer. Ah, okay. And uh, the, the class was quite interesting. <laughs> what was really interesting about it was how many different ways we had to cheat. <laughs> the guys who were participating in it, right? Everybody had their own little secrets. And, you know, these are the things that we kept away from the, <laughs> away from the people who ran the club. But it was, it was wonderful. None of the cheating really, really made that much difference, to be honest. It was just stuff that we would do because it was fun to do. But it was a fun class. And, uh, of course, it's gone on to, you know, world popularity and all over the world now. But for, for me and for the other guys out there, threw their, their hat in the ring, you know. Well, all of a sudden, after a year or two, it got pretty popular, and then, then it wasn't just a bunch of, you know, guys who were sort of graduating club events, and that started attracting more more professional racers, right? So the level of competition went up and up and up and up. And I think that was one of the things that, that pushed me into uh, trying to figure out how to ride better because there were, the level of competition was just getting stronger and stronger. Gotcha. Was it Wayne Rainey, the, the guy who ended up winning three championships? You taught him? Uh, yeah, Wayne was, uh, he was a dirt track racer and he was, he was a young kid. He was 18 and, and had a great family. They were all interested in racing and he was riding some, uh, he was riding small bikes for Kawasaki and uh, short track and, and other dirt events. And and I, I started accumulating all this information. I went to the Kawasaki guys and I said, would you guys like to have another road racer? Because the professional racing here was getting a, a little bit more popular, a little bit more popular. There were more people showing up for the events. They said, yeah, okay, sure. You know, go ahead and train them and see what happens. And I worked with him for about a year, a year and a half. And then he's, you know, got his pro license and started winning races. So that was, it was pretty good for my reputation, I guess. When, yeah, he did go on to win world championships. And that's when I read some articles on you calling you the guru of um, superbikes or racing or something at that time. So you got a rep and then you had others coming and then uh, what went from there? Yeah, well, you know, you get a reputation after a while and then people wanted to do it. And I didn't really have to promote it much at all. Just, I was getting good results with riders. And so I, I always had somebody or a few people that I could train. And then the level of the riders that I was attracting who wanted to find out a little bit more, improve, kept on going up as well, which was pretty cool. And it had some really neat guys and, uh, you know, they went on to win all kinds of world championships. And that was sort of fun. I guess, I don't know, when I counted them last time, there was the guys that uh, I had trained at one fifty four. Fifty six. Fifty six. Okay. Judy corrected me on that. <laughs> Fifty six <laughs> national and world uh, championships. And I went, yeah, that's pretty neat. You know, I started off trying to do something, and it turned into a real, you know, reality of trying to sort this 
thing out, this, the writing thing, again, you know, it, it seems simple enough, but again, the multitasking it makes it really complex and you, there are these key elements, they don't ever go away. So breaking those things down has been quite a lot of fun. And you know what? I'm still doing it. I'm still breaking these things down. I've over 200 specific exercises now that have you know fallen out of writers coming to me and saying, you know, I have this problem when I do this, that, and the other thing. And I go, yeah, let's see. Huh. And try to break it down based on what's the most basic or underlying thing that can affect that. And in some cases, you know, I look at it and I go, whoa, wow, there's so much going on here. What am I going to do? And then once you, you find something that's really basic to the activity, then you can you can have somebody practice that. It can be very, very simple, like finding the middle of the page. And I'm like, yeah, okay, let's find the middle of the page. <laughs> <laughs> so in, your, in the book which you wrote, A Twist of the Wrist, which became an immediate bestseller, you talk about, as you said, you compartmentalise these things and you talk about just what, say, your right hand is doing while you're riding the motorcycle. There's over 50 things your right hand is doing. Tell me what some of those things are. Can you rattle them off and tell us if, you, if your right hand's doing 50 things, how many things is your whole body doing at that time that you're riding a bike? Well, uh, did I write 50 things on what you do with your right hand? <laughs> well, maybe that's not in the book. Maybe the 50 came later. We have drills for those. And I, and I was just uh, actually just talking to my friend Mark here a little while ago and I went, you know, there was this time when I sat down and I went, I went, you know, writers are always interested in their body position. They want to know what they look like on the bike. They always want to look, you know, like they're doing a pretty good job and they want to look pretty and they want to look like MotoGP guys and that type of thing, right? And I went, but yeah, but what are the problems? And I sat down one morning and I was writing them down, writing them down. There were five or 10 things and then there were 20 things and then there were 30 things and then there was 35 and then there was 40 and then there was 45 and then there was 50 and there was then it wind up with 51 or 52 items that were these you know specific influences on on your body position and how you can, could be right and, and helping you and I'll go be wrong and not helping you uh, boy this is a lot of fun and it's not something that I hadn't done before that came literally out of much the same well as trying to find you know, specific underlying reasons that you, you can accomplish what you want to on a motorcycle and sometimes when you can't accomplish things on a motorcycle. Gotcha. So point is, it's great fun to do something like that. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. And so tell me the California Superbike Schools, at what point did you open that? And as I was getting ready today, check out my T-shirt. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. My favourite well, T-shirt. I have Japanese. Uh, it's a Hiroshigi. Yeah, that's exactly. cool. It's a, right. it's a wave, my favourite thing. It's a wave, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the so you started the California Superbike School in California and it's, I mean, it's, it's huge and you've now got the schools and chapters of it all over the world. You've got one in Australia. You've taught, I don't know, I think hundreds of thousands of students through your schools over the years. Like, you're like a mogul. You're a like- mogul? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm gonna... A rat bag mogul. Uh, much better. This is the 40th year of the school, so we started in uh, 1980. Yeah. I have that written down someplace, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, here it is. It's on my shirt. That's what somebody wrote for me so that I would remember when when I started oh, classic. the school. I like it. Mate, you're yeah. going to have to send me one to go with my T-shirt. Okay, we'll get you one for sure. Yeah, we have a great enterprise with the Superbike School because... I started it off here in, in 80 and then worked to develop what it was and how it worked. And then we started going around the country and 
train different riders. And I wanted it to be a full service school. So we had leathers and helmets and boots and gloves and that type of thing. And nobody else had ever done that over here, for sure. Uh, there were a couple of places around the world. There's one place in England, you know, that you could go to Brands Hatch and also get leathers and helmets and boots and gloves and that type of thing. But I went, you know, I, I want to travel. You know, United States is a big place. It's 3,000 miles across and it's got, you know, 50 or 60 different tracks. And I want to go to all those tracks. I want to, you know, I want to take this thing around and not make people travel for very far. So that's, that was kind of my intention with starting the school. And uh, yeah, it's worked out really well. I can't remember whether it's, a, I think about 125,000 students have come through the school over the last 40 years. It's like, their, I think our 40th anniversary actually. So we have uh, coaches in Australia, coaches in the UK, we have coaches in Greece, uh, we've got coaches all over the place. And, and that was, I guess, the most difficult part, the key element that keeps the school alive. And that is showing the coaches how to coach. So pretty much been doing for the last 40 years is writing up how to coach and what are the things to look for, how they work, what are the influences of them, what are the positives, what are the negatives, how does it work out? And that's, uh, now I've got, you know, quite a few guys out there around the world now that know how to coach the coaches. And that's like, whoa, okay. I guess that's as good as it gets really, because it's not me having to do everybody. Uh, that doesn't work out very well. You know, you can't really expand yourself that well. But the formats that we use, the coach training is quite well established. It's an interesting thing. I didn't have any experience with it before, but uh, now I think that we've got 400 pages of material on how you coach. There is something to it. You know, it's not just, okay, this guy's a pretty good writer. You just go and listen to him. He's got tons of good advice and you know, do what he says and everything will be fine, right? And it's like, well, that's the way it was before I started. All right, and it didn't work out very well because people had no idea what people were talking about. It was either too broad or general, or the things were too specific and they you know, had no experience with them. So that the whole uh, format of writer training, right, was that what do you want to train the students on? And then how do you train the coaches to train the students on that exact stuff? So that, that's been the, the focus, I guess, for the, about 40 years. Right, that's amazing. <laughs> I actually was, I was amazed to read that it's only recently that even the top professional motorcycle riders brought on coaches only recently. That's true. Uh, yeah, when I started, there was no coaching going on. There were every once in a while, somebody who had, had a pretty good name in racing would say, okay, uh, we're going to do a school. And uh, so they would, you know, rent a track and a bunch of guys would come out and they would, you know, try to try to communicate uh, how, how they did whatever they did. But most often it was uh, it was more follow me, I'll show you how to do it. And for the most part, writers either would get it or, you know, some would understand it. And most it was more of a, you know, a day they spent with somebody who was pretty famous. And uh, I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be a real true school. You know, it seems your ability to, you know, break down the facets as you've talked about and then being able to communicate it to others, students and coaches, and then scale the whole thing. I mean, it's really interesting and impressive, that's for sure. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's really quite fun. I mean, if you start to understand something and uh, see what the basic parts of it are to understand what the positive of something is and what the negative of something is. You know, if you do it well, you get this result. If you don't do it very well, this is the result you get. And usually if you don't do it very well, the result you get is, you know, a bunch of confusion and uh, far too many things going on. So the idea of breaking something down that's so kind of rangy, it can go so many places so quickly 
for writer. It's not, it's not like hitting a baseball or, or doing something, you know, individually like that. You've got a motorcycle underneath you. You've got a track out there. You've got other people out there. You've got all these other influences going on. So it's, it turns into this sort of wildly complex piece of business for, for writers. And then anybody can get their attention off on, you know, the wrong thing really easily. And then that's sort of, I guess, been sort of part of the basics of my research is, you know, you can identify those things and then it calms them down for people, right? Quite often it changes their lives. And at the school, you know, yeah, we've run 125,000 people through the school over the last 40 years. And uh, the really great part of that is, you know, this is the best day I ever had on a motorcycle. <laughs> we see things like that quite often and I go, all right. <laughs> but the coaches have the same feel about it too. You know, they watch the students improve, you know, before their very eyes. And uh, so this is a great group of guys that we have. We have about 100 coaches around the world now with the school uh, in Australia and the other one in the UK and then one branch in, uh, in Greece as well. They've gone to 36 countries and I think, you know, totally we've run 124 or 125 different tracks around the world. So, yeah, I guess it expanded. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, there's a lot of science and engineering in motorcycles, obviously, but also what you've applied to that space. Did you learn, you know, any of those subjects at school? Did you go to college? How did you, how did you tap into this? Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Uh, no, I did not have a scientific background. That was a little rangy when I was in school. Yeah, high school was an interesting situation. I'm not quite sure how I got through it. I know I cheated quite a lot to graduate from it. <laughs> Going to school afterwards, you know, of course, my parents wanted me to go to college because my sister and my brother had gone to college and that type of stuff, you know, and it was expected. And uh, I had zero interest in it. I really did. It was, uh, it's, all I really wanted to do was just ride motorcycles and I had to figure out how to do that in between, you know, all these other things that the pressures of the world put upon you. But I did. I managed to figure that out and started working in motorcycle shops when I was about 16, you know, finding out more about how to work on, on bikes and getting more, more experience riding. Right? And I started off really riding dirt track bikes. I didn't do a lot of it, but it was a great background for me just to just to have a motorcycle and say I was racing. I thought that was pretty cool. It did lay an interesting foundation for me at a pretty young age. Nowadays, you know, if you want to become known or, you know, somebody who's world championship quality, it's people who started riding when they were three. And that's what it is, you know, because we have all these great professional people. We have Valentino Rossi and, you know, or A. Lorenzo and all these guys all over the world. And people are looking at it and like, this is a pretty good deal, right? We can teach my kid how to ride motorcycles. Let's start pretty early, you know, let's get them on the bike when they're three years old. And that's about when they're starting. And you realize that these guys are making really good money and they're becoming world famous and that type of thing. And everybody in Italy knows who Valentino Rossi is and everybody in Spain knows who these, the Spanish guys are, right? And so on and so forth. It, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's such a phenomenon. It's something that to achieve towards. So anyhow, Point was that, um, you know, it's not, you know, starting off when you're 10 or 12 or 15 anymore. It's, you know, you start training these kids up when they're two or three or four years old. Yeah, wow. Amazing. Hey, 
as we've heard, there's been lots of great successes and the school's gone from strength to strength. But, you know, you were blazing this trail. I'm sure there's been lots of adversity and hurdles and, you know, financial pressures and whatever along the way. Like, how have you dealt with that stuff? And give us an insight into some of the things you had to uh, push through to um, keep this show on the road. Oh, yeah. Anytime you transfer out of, uh, you know, just doing something yourself, you need uh, you need more people. And as soon as you have more people, then you have the problems of communication. And as soon as you have the problems of communication, things get changed or altered from, you know, one guy to the next guy. So the strong point of, of that was being able to write down the, um, the discoveries that I was making on how to do this coaching business because there was no data on how to coach motorcycles. So I don't know, I guess I was just uh, curious enough to get the attitude that finding these things out was, was fun for me and that it was viable for these other people. And uh, that part of it, I really just fell into it and uh, hadn't changed a whole lot, actually, <laughs> in the last 40 years. Hey, um, something you were telling me when um, I last caught up with you was your experience in the broadcasting side of things. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you told me you produced and created what was the first broadcasting of motorcycle races in the U.S.? Is that right? Yeah, actually, it uh, was the first time anybody had filmed a whole series of racing. And it was based on a class we called Formula USA. And the class itself was pretty cool. It was like Superbike. You could pretty much do anything you wanted to. You could run crazy fuel in it. You could put all the modifications you wanted. We didn't have any restrictions on that whatsoever. The competition started to gain some uh, some popularity and had more and more talented people come in and ride the uh, the events and we got a little bit better prize money and that type of thing. It was quite fun. So it was something that the uh, idea of the Formula USA was uh, one of the things that I came up with. And then the filming of it was like, oh, okay, we've got this thing, let's film it. And I didn't know how to film anything, I, not really. I, there we were, you know, going to seven or eight, 10, 12 tracks around the country filming these things and we found a one of the TV stations this is in the uh, late 70s yeah finding the uh, sports shows that would actually run these things and I got hooked up with some people who actually knew something about filmmaking we went out and we, we shot these shots and it was the first complete race series TV show in America yeah on prime TV holy shit wow and um, how long did you, you know, produce that for and what happened? Did you end up selling it to a network or how did it shape up? Yeah, we sold shows. We were kind of on our own. You know, we had a certain amount of uh, advertising space that we would put into the shows and, and we would sell that. They weren't backing the show particularly, but they were giving us good spots on it, which was actually pretty good. And uh, I'm not really sure how they made their money on it, to be honest. <laughs> uh, apparently they did. We did have to pay something for something, but I don't remember exactly what that was. But the neat thing was that it was the first time anybody had done it in America, actually. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a good idea and a first-time creation for the country. And I think it helped a lot just to build up the enthusiasm for racing and motorcycles in general. There would be an occasional show on, like, NBC or something like that of some particular race or one event or, or whatever. But I was proud of it. You got to add pioneering broadcaster to the to the bio. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I was the talent guy, right? I walked around with the thing and I did all the interviews and that type of stuff. And I went, well, 
okay, I'm going to have to hire somebody else to do it. But I don't know. It looked kind of fun to me to do it. And I knew all the guys, right, all the race guys. And so I got along with everybody quite nicely. And I went, you know, if we could hire somebody who, you know, looks proper and wears the right clothes and that type of stuff. But I was, what the hell with it? Well, Keith Code will do it. And uh, it was quite fun. You know, if you can turn any of this stuff into fun, then then all of a sudden you're not working, really. You're you're just uh, figuring out a different way to have have a little bit more fun doing it. It's a good, good approach to life there. <laughs> ah, yeah, absolutely. It, it served me well, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and tell me about Judy, your wife. Of how long have you guys been together? Over forty years, I think. No, it's fifty. <laughs> We've been together fifty years. Wow. Yeah, she says maybe the next fifty will go better. <laughs> <laughs> Judy's been a fantastic support through this whole thing, and uh, once it started the school. She wanted to be part of it. Never really. She had no interest in riding motorcycles before I met her, as far as I know. You didn't, did you? No. No. Okay, no. <laughs> that was a no. <laughs> and I didn't think so. I, I mean, I taught her how to ride, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> That's a story all on its own. But, but she worked at the schools for 30 years, and it was a huge asset for it, you know. She did the registration and helped keep me on track and then all the student services. She took care of the people, you know, because we realized quite early on that if you know, in, in many cases, you know, if you didn't provide salt and potassium tablets, for example, you know, if it's a hot day, by the time you get to about noon or one o'clock in the afternoon, everybody's so blown away and dehydrated and not having quite the right electrolytes, which I knew about since I was a kid, they wouldn't learn anything for the rest of the day. So we started off with that and then Judy made it more sophisticated and started feeding people and turned into a totally her area. And she ran it for 30 years perfectly. And uh, then I fired her. And that's because she had some other stuff she put in her 30 years. <laughs> you guys are an amazing team. Yeah. And that's pretty much what it takes, really. I guess other people do it different ways. You know, they just have a bunch of good friends one way or the other and, you know, and embark on some kind of activity or something that they have some affinity for. They like it. They want to do it. And I'm sure that works. But it, it's great to have, you know, the person who's with you all the time on the same page as you and. You know, I didn't even have to call her. All I'd have to do is, you know, wake her up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mate, the books, so they've been translated to lots of languages. Is it still selling, Twist of the Wrist? It's still the definitive book on motorcycle instruction, is it? Uh, Well, there are two Twist of the Wrist books. There's the first one, a Twist of the Wrist, and then there's a Twist of the Wrist Volume 2. And, uh, you know, I wrote the first one in 1983, but the second one in 1994. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were 10 years apart, I guess. But uh, yeah, the books have sold hundreds of thousands of copies actually around the world. I think it's eight, nine languages or nine languages that have been translated into. And I don't know, it's actually a little beyond my thing. And I was like, oh, okay, people translate books. And it wasn't something that I even thought about. And certainly when I was writing the books and then people wanted to translate them. And the first translation actually was in, in German. And wow, we sold a lot of copies and I was, you know, I made money from it. And uh, okay, I got the idea here. <laughs> this is something that people really make a living at. And I was like, yeah, okay, great. And then it kind of rolled out from there. And there's an Estonian translation, there's Russian, there's Spanish is in the works too. That was a nice thing to experience that, the, the books were of value for sure in the English language 
and uh, Chinese. It's in you know, Chinese as well. I I guess you put another feather in your cap. You know, you get a translation of you write a book, and then you get people want to translate it, and then then you send it out, and and they people buy it. You know, you start thinking, yeah, hey, maybe you got something, kid. You know, maybe maybe you actually got something. <laughs> I mean, you've probably saved lives. I mean, you know, whether you're doing it as a sport or whether you're just using it for fun or transport, obviously it's dangerous and, you know, you could say you've saved a lot of lives. That's a good thought as well. It's interesting. I get uh, uh, texts, emails every once in a while from somebody that give me a story about what they learned from either coming to the school or, or reading the books that, you know, saved their bacon and they didn't die and, and so on. And that's, yeah, that's pretty neat stuff for sure. My intent is just to improve, writer improvement, but you get those stories. And I guess that's one of those little things you'd sort of put over on the side here. And you go, uh, well, if there's a reckoning at the end of this lifetime, I hope they look at what I did well. <laughs> that's great. The tally's looking good, mate. It's on your side. Have you had, I mean, you've spent your life, you know, riding, racing motorcycles. Have you had many accidents? A few, yeah. Uh, break a bone every once in a while, I guess, and that type of thing. But, uh, you know, the, here's the interesting thing about that. You know, we've had all these students come through the schools. They understand that there's a danger to it. And having personally taken that on as, yeah, okay, you know, this thing will fall over on me if I don't pay attention. If I, I can run into something, you know, and if something else hits me, um, somebody's going to, you know, wheel me away on a gurney or with this, that, and the other thing. You know, so the, the neat thing about the public that has come to us and the thing that I love so much about it is that they've acknowledged the, the danger part of it. They, they know that they could get hurt. They could break bones. They could be killed doing this sport. And you're wide open, right? I mean, there aren't any safety belts. You don't have big, you know, air balloons, bags that expand if you make a mistake and fall down. You've got personal ones for your, you know, your bones and that type of thing. You don't have one for the whole deal. And uh, I think that motorcycle riders who have kind of acknowledged the danger, they've brought themselves a cut above, you know, the average garden variety human in the sense that they're willing to put themselves in that position to achieve the satisfaction that you get from riding motorcycles. And they are incredibly exciting to ride. And when you go a little bit faster, then they're more exciting, right? And everybody knows this, <laughs> right? This is not a mystery to say. So if you go a little faster, you get a little bit more, you know, do you get a, a bigger buzz out of it? And you go, oh yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's that whole thing of the, you know, sort of the tone level of the, of the people who are, who are interested in the sport and then the acknowledgement of the, of the dangers of it. I think it's, it, it's a cut above. Well, you know you're alive. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're living life. You know, you got the throttle in your hand and you're riding down the road. You know, like, okay, if things don't go well, you know, it's not, uh, don't have a car around me, no. No, don't have airbags. Okay, very good. Uh, looks like it's all on me. <laughs> Do you ride much still? Not as often as I like. We've got lots of schools. We do 80, 90 school days a year. You know, what is the old thing? The, uh, the cobbler whose kids have no shoes. <laughs> I don't get to ride as much as I like because I very much enjoy doing the schools and, and, and working with students. 
and kind of expanding that part of it. You know, I've got great coaches. They're so enthusiastic about what they do, and they develop all these neat little subtleties on how they're coaching around the stuff that they have to do just from the material that I've written up on it. And I love to watch them. I love to listen to them. I go, ah, oh, that's really cool. I not, I wouldn't have done it that way. And I listen to it and how they're presenting it or how they're questioning the other person about it. And I was like, oh, God, that's, wow. There is a return flow on it, right? It's not the same as writing, which is true. But I, you know, every once in a while I do, I get out, I get out and I go and write. And sometimes I don't want to write because I go, you know, if, if I go out and start writing, I, I know I'm going to notice something I never noticed before. It's going to put me off on a whole new path of research, and it's like, oh, oh my God, not another one, you know? <laughs> Which has happened quite a few times. Relentlessly striving for perfection. Hey, um, we're just about to wrap up, mate, but um, tell me about the bikes you have at the school. Like, what size are they, and are they the same bikes in the different schools around the world? Uh, yeah, we use the, uh, the BMW S1000RR, the sport bike. Uh, here and then also our Australian branch also has uh, double R's, a fantastic motorcycle and it's like 195 horsepower. They'll go 200 miles an hour if you got the space for it. But in the UK, we started off with Kawasaki's back then when I was on Kawasaki. We were actually on Kawasaki for 30 years and then changed to BMW and now uh, the UK schools uh, went back to Kawasaki. and. Uh, you know, it, it's who's interested in it, who thinks they're going to get some benefit out of it. And that's the one you always want to go with wherever the enthusiasm is. And there's more enthusiasm through the uh, the Kawasaki guys. So they're back with Kawasaki. Uh, we got Kawasaki's in the UK, BMW's uh, here and in, in Australia. And, mate, tell us a, an adventure that you've had in Australia. I know you've been down here a bunch of times. It, it's on. It's in Victoria, isn't it, the school? Phillip Island or around there, is it? We run Phillip Island. We run Eastern Creek. I think they're four or five tracks that we run in Australia that the group down there runs. Yeah, the school itself is located in the Melbourne area. And you've come down for the Grand Prix there, I think, haven't you, a couple of times? Oh, yeah. Yeah, back in the 90s. The Australian branch started in 88, 88. 87 or 88, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Keith Code, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for your time today. You bet, Roger. Thank you very much for having me on the show. The cool thing about motorcycle riding is kind of the overview of it, I think, for what I've come up with over the last 65 years that I've been riding motorcycles. And again, the attitude of, of people who ride, it's interesting. It's a free-flowing because you're exposed to this, you know, this danger all the time. But it's not like you're worried about it, you know. You you know what you want it to feel like for you, and so you you chase those great sensations, and that's what it's all about. Even if it's simple, just you know, riding to work type of thing, and you know, you you're out there, you're doing it, you're involved, you know, you're in the environment, you're not sort of separated from it. It's just such a cool thing, you know, at any level, you know, at any level, including racing or just riding a scooter down the street actually it's got its own its own thing and i don't think there's there's anything there's anything else out there that's like it really i mean okay you can ride horses but then you gotta go and you gotta get dirt you gotta put a saddle on it you know you can't just go stuff a key in it turn it push the button start it up and ride away you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, sounds good mate thanks for having me on yeah that was great This is Lee Rogers, and you've been listening to the Blank Canvas podcast. 
I trust you enjoyed listening to Keith Code and hearing about his large life. Talk about blazing a trail, literally and figuratively. To find out more about Keith and his California Superbike Schools, head to superbikeschool.com. You'll find the link for the Australian and UK schools at this website as well. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.